Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. I think one of the best things that came out of Jeff's passing was Vernon and myself um, having a conversation that we didn't have for 20 years because Vernon and I didn't speak um, for years. Um, and it was ironic because the first time we we wound up speaking, we wound up playing a gig for Gary Scheiders. We, we put together a benefit to raise money for Gary um, while he was in the hospital. And in the midst of that, he winds up dying. So we said, well, let's still do the shows and give the money to the family. Um, which is what we did. But that was the first time Vernon and I seen each other uh, were in the same room and, you know, everybody was thinking like there was going to be some kind of weird fisticuffs in the yard. Well, wait, what was, the, what was the issue between the two of you? Uh, it wasn't, I, I think it was a lot of, a lot of miscommunication. Um, something that happened in 89, um, but an interview I gave that got misconstrued um, and that caused like a little bit of a riff between, not even a riff between us and them. Um, management made it a point to kind of like, you know, keep us church and state, keep us separated. Um, and while we were cool with everybody, you know, there was no, you know, I'd always see Corey, I'd always see Will, I'd always see Muzz. When Muzz left and Doug came in, I'd see that we were all, you know, cool with everybody. But me and Vernon just had no, no connection, no conversation. And we were cool. Um, it was a band thing, you know. It was, it was that that thing, you know. And the funny thing about when we did the Gary Shatter thing was, you know, all day long, everybody kept pulling me in corners, like, "Y'all need to cut this out. Y'all need to make up." I'm like, "Why y'all bothering me?" Cause everybody think I'm like I'm supposed to be the dude going around knocking people out. I'm like, that's not even who I am. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, we good, but me and Vernon wound up um, in a dressing room. Listen to us. And the funny thing was, our conversation wasn't even about music. It was about being fathers, because we both had kids for the first time. We both had daughters, and we spent the better part in that dressing room talking about what it was being a dad. Um. Great show, you know, great show, but we we didn't we didn't push any further in our relationship. It stopped there. When we got together to do the Million Man Ma shows, that opened up a whole nother level of 
this again, and we slowly start creeping back into it, but um, that wasn't the thing, and it winds up being um, Jeff's passing that finally leads to us having a long overdue conversation, and um, because losing Jeff hurt, um, it hurt all of us. I mean, it was it was deep like that. Um, so him and I had this conversation, and it was deep. And I think from that point moving forward, you know, that completely re reinstated our friendship on a, on another level that it couldn't have even it wasn't even on 20 years prior. So when I thought about doing the Jungle for Jeff thing, I I reached out to the dudes that I had real heavy conversations with the day Jeff died, and that was Eddie, that was Jesse, that was Vernon. And that was Chico. Chico was Jeff's bass player. And um, the funny thing was, I had um, so I asked everybody, do they want to play? And everybody said, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, okay, cool. And I didn't think about a drummer. Um, <laughs> and Lenny White had played at the Second Million Man Mosh, and that was the first time he'd seen Spies. And our show was horrible. <laughs> Literally. So the first Million Man Ma show, um, Vernon had gotten hit by a car um, maybe four weeks before the show. And um, we were all worried about whether he was going to be able to play this, that, and the other. And um, that first one, I think we came out and we destroyed that place. And we went on first. You know, that's how we, we, it was cool. We didn't care. We like going on first anyway, so we can lay back and watch everybody else work. But we went out there and we destroyed that place. They came out and it wasn't bad. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. But it wasn't amazing. The second Million Man Ma show, it was the exact opposite. Um, we went out there and it was horrible. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. They came out and destroyed that place. And I was like, that's it. this is this is what it is. This is how it should be. You know, it's like, you're always supposed to come out and kill. If you can kill, you kill. End of story. So Lenny is sitting at a table and I go to walk past him to go talk to a friend of mine and he grabs my hand, he grabs my arm when I'm walking by. And I pull back because I don't know who it is. I turn around and he goes, Jimmy. I was like, oh, wow. He goes, man, he goes, y'all cats were, were like, Amazing, and I was like, "No, we sucked." And I'm like, and he's like, "Is Ronnie really in the band?" Because we announced Ronnie, you know, as the new member of the band. I was like, "Hey, goes, dude." He goes, "How can I get down?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, right." And I just completely was like, "He was like, dude, here's my number." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I just walked away. And my man said, "Yo, that's Lenny White." I was like, "Yeah." I said, he, he thought we the show was amazing. I was like, we sucked. <laughs> so I thought no more about it. So by the time we start doing the Jungle for Jeff thing, just out of nowhere, I, Lenny calls. He goes, hey, how you doing? I'm like, hey, I'm good, man. He goes, what's going on? I said, oh, you know, you're just trying to keep it together. I said, I'm trying to, I said, I'm trying to figure out, I'm putting together this thing for Jeff, you know, a session. He's like, oh, really? I said, yeah. I said, I got Eddie Martinez, I got Vernon, I got Jesse Johnson, I got Rick, I got Chico Huff. I said, you know, in his front, I said, the only thing I don't have is a drummer. <laughs> this is me talking to Lenny White. 
And I'm not even thinking. I'm just like, yeah, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't even know who's, I don't, I don't know who's gonna play drums. And he coughs. He's like, <clears throat> and I was like, hey, bro, you got you got a cold or something? He goes, no, no, I, I don't have a cold. He goes, who do you who, who are you talking to? And I was like, all of a sudden, my light bulb's like, <clears throat> and I'm like, oh shit, that's what I'm talking. I'm talking to a drummer. I said, let me let's just scratch what I just said. I said, let's just start from uh, from the beginning. I said, hey, Lenny, what's good? How you doing? Hey, I got this session coming up, and I need a drummer. <laughs> Would you like to play drums on this track? And he was like, sure. He goes, um, I said, what do you need? He goes, what is everybody else getting? I said, nothing. This is love. He goes, I'm favorite nations. He goes, I get what everybody else gets. I said, cool in the game. <clears throat> no. I asked a friend of mine, which I was really lucky, a cat, um, Pierre, uh, he's going to kill me, I can't say their last name, French dude, but him and his brother have a, um, a film company, and they had done some really great stuff, and I asked him if they would film the session, and um, he came down and filmed the session. It was a three-day session, but it was, it was, it was, it was beautiful. Um, did it for Jeff, you know. Turned out great, and um. Yeah, I urge anyone who hasn't seen that video go check out YouTube and give it a look. It's very cool. Yeah, it, you know, and I was, you know, Eddie flew in, which was great. You know, everybody came through. Jesse, you know, cut his thing out in California. I couldn't get him to come out, um, but that was all right. Um, but it was deep because I thought I was good. You know, I thought I was back, <laughs> and I wasn't. And um, after we did a session, I sat down and attempted to write what I thought was going to be the next Spies album. And I wrote, like, three or four songs, and they were horrible. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know it's deep when you can recognize your own shit is horrible. You know? Maybe, like, maybe Lenny White would have thought they were great. Well, my <laughs> thing was somebody might have thought they were great, and that was the thing I was like, now, the worst thing that could have happened is we put out these songs... They become, you know, the biggest thing we've ever done. And I got to start doing heroin because we got to play these shitty songs every motherfucking night. So I scrapped the whole thing. And I said, you know, um, I'm just going to wait. I'm, I'm going to wait until something shows up. And it wasn't until maybe a year later, which was just really, really odd. The first song that showed up was Home. And I, I heard it, like, in my head, literally, like, I heard I heard it musically, and I heard the chorus. I didn't hear lyrics. And I knew what the song was about, and I knew who sent it, and I was like, I can't touch this. I'm not ready to do that, because I can't write about death. Um, so I walked away. I just, I, I wouldn't even touch it. I came back maybe two weeks later, and I pulled all my stuff out to demo it up. And I, you know, I did all the programming and, and sat there and played through the song, and I cried like the whole time because I Jeff had sent it. I knew it was Jeff. Um, by the time I finished it, I put down guitars and bass and drums, and I I tripped because it was almost ten minutes long. <laughs> so I said, I'm just going to send it to the guys so they can kind of hear. And I said, don't trip. It's long, but this was the first thing that showed up, and I sent it to everybody, and everybody went, whoa, are you serious? I was like, 
yeah, you know, I said, and Jeff sent it. They were like, damn, okay, fine. So the crazy thing was Jeff had literally become he 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 started to show up in like the strangest ways with me. I got this inbox message from somebody from a dude that I didn't know, um, and he was like, um, I, "I was a huge Jeff Lee Johnson fan. I saw the Jungle for Jeff video. He goes, I was so moved by it, you know." And he goes, he's talking, talking, talking. He goes. Well, the reason why I'm reaching out to you is because um, I have one of Jeff's guitars. And I was thinking about possibly letting it go, um, but before I put it up, I wanted to see if maybe you were interested in it. And I was like, oh, wow, you got to be kidding. Now, mind you, prior to that, when Jeff passed, um, nobody in the family played. He had a basement filled with instruments so the family had decided to you know let go of his stuff and I asked if I could possibly get like the master list um, from the dude who was going to be in charge of it because I didn't want Jeff's guitars to just wind up on eBay for anybody to go oh that's a bargain you don't deserve one of Jeff's guitars you know what I'm saying you don't even if you don't even know no you don't and um I turned around, Vernon got two of them, um, a whole bunch of us got, you know, and, and the one that I wanted was the one he named Mildred, and it was really ironic because the day that I request, I asked about her, dude said, wow, how did you, I just pulled her out five minutes ago, I said, you're kidding, I said, that's mine, he goes, you got it, so that was the first guitar I got, so when I got the inbox message, um, Guy had a guitar um, that Jeff had named Gladys. I love it. Jeff always named his guitars and whatnot. But I was like, dude, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm broke as fuck. You know what I'm saying? I said, but don't sell it. You know, if you bought it, it was meant for you to have. Don't let it go. You keep it. And we talked maybe two, three more conversations. And by the fourth conversation, dude said, you know something? I'm sending it to you. It's yours. And he gave it to me. Wow. I was like, oh, my God. So the weird thing was, two weeks later, I get another inbox message from a guy that I don't know. He's got Jeff's Brown Bomber guitar. I'm like, that's the Holy Grail guitar. I'm like, are you kidding? He goes, yeah, you know, I, gotta, I have to sell it. I was like, <laughs> Jeff, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, you, you got people coming to me with your babies, but you're not giving me the lottery numbers. <laughs> Give me some numbers so I can play them, dude, you know? But um, I told you, don't sell it. I can't take it. Don't sell it. He puts it up. He put it up on eBay. And luckily, nobody even noticed it. Nobody. And he winds up pulling it. And he still has it to this day. I was like, all right, cool. So the first song we go into the studio to cut is Home. And when we go in, it was like everybody had a breakdown in the studio. Everybody. The song just kept affecting everybody. Um, Ronnie had a breakdown in the studio. Rick had a breakdown in the studio. The engineer, everybody just kept, the song just kept destroying everybody. It just kept making, it was almost like it made you feel things that you thought you had suppressed or things that you were over. 
and it, it didn't. It opened up the floodgates of things you thought you had buried that were just, you know, whatever. So we lay down the first pass of rhythm guitars. We used Jeff's guitar. And we're sitting there listening to the playback, and I'm sitting in a chair in the middle of the room, just cradling the guitar the whole time. And when the song was over, everybody was sitting there crying. And Rick looks over and he goes, oh, shit. He goes, what did you do? I said, what? The headstock on Jeff's guitar just broke. I didn't hit it. I didn't. There wasn't anything around me. It broke on it. It just broke on its own. And Ronnie goes, dude, what's up with that? I said, it's Jeff. I said, he's here. He's happy. You know, and Ronnie said, well, what are we going to do? And Ronnie jumped up and went and got some rubber bands and him and Rick put rubber bands around the headstock. And the funny thing was the guitar never went out of tune. Hmm. And we went on and I cut the rest of the session and I never took the rubber bands off. And they dry rotted like <laughs> two years later, they just fell off. And I was like, Jeff showed up so many times in that session. Um, this record was about Jeff, seriously. Um, it really was, and um, you know, it's 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 deep, you know. And for anybody who has the vinyl, if you look at the runoff grooves, um, I wrote things <laughs> in the runoff grooves on each side, you know. And I think I wrote on the side that has home. I wrote home was for Jeff Lee Johnson, um, you know. Yeah, dude, deep. So you know, I lost. So the crazy thing for me was, you know, I met Jimmy. In 70, I lost Jimmy in 70. I met Eddie in 89. I lose Eddie in what, 92? 92, 93? I think, I think 92. Um, Ronnie, who had been a part of my musical lexicon since 1973, 74, um, with Edwin Birdsong, I heard Rising Sign and Paint Me Any Color. I heard the Supernatural album. Um, you know, Ronnie has been a, a, a part of me for a long time. And then, he, you know, he winds up in the band, and then we lose him. And it was crazy because, you know, to listen to Home, I, I couldn't listen to it at a certain point because it was like, it was written about, it was written for Jeff, and now it's about Ronnie. And it was Ronnie who introduced me to Jeff. Just crazy. Yeah. that all that all that you know behind the scenes stuff that you just shared i mean makes that so much more resonant you know because that was already to me you know a great album thank um, you and uh how'd you come up with the title for the record you know we would <laughs> so the, the funny thing about making this record was i asked fish who was not he wasn't in fishbone at this point you know so, you know, the crazy thing was as much as we'd all known each other and loved each other, we never played together. And I said to Fish, I said, just like one day out of nowhere, I was like, let me ask dude if he'd ever want to play in a band again. <laughs> and I called Fish. And I said, hey, man, um, I got a question. He goes, yeah, what's up? I said, would you ever consider being in a band again? And he goes, no, nah, man, I, you know, I, I made peace with my dudes. He thought I was talking about Fishbone. He said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good with those. I made peace with them. I said, I ain't talking about your fucking old ass, man. I'm talking about spies. He goes, really? I was like, yeah. He was like, 
hells yeah. I was like, great. <laughs> we, we got a drummer, you know. And the crazy thing was, so how I demo up songs, because I'm, I, I play drums, but I, I program like a drummer plays because I think like a drummer does. So I demo up all of the songs. And um, I my, my, my beats are 99 and 3 quarters percent definitive. What I don't do is fills because fills are a personal thing for a drummer. Grooves, as a songwriter, if this is what I have, this is what I'm giving you, it's definitive. Don't divert from it. You can you can put a little bit of yourself in it, but try to stay where I, you know, this is how the songs are written. Fish, I would send him the joints. He would go in. He would cut real drums. He would send them back to me, and we'd go into the studio here, and we cut. And we never worked like that before because we've always been a, a, a band who was wherever we were. So me, Rick, and whoever the drummer was, was were always wherever we cut. We never made a record like this before. Mm -hmm. And Fitch would go in and just lay down just like the most banana shit. And all of a sudden, you had to almost like relearn how to sit because it's a real person. Again, he's just not in the room. So you, you play against him and you get that ebb and flow thing. And um it was it was it was beautiful. And that was like the first one he sent back. And I mean when I heard his drums on that track, I was like I just cried all over again. It was like, oh he killed it. And he changed which was funny, he changed the section in the song. And when the section came and I was waiting to hear what I gave him and he didn't play it, I was like I got mad. Like, are you kidding me? Why did you? You can't change my shit. <laughs> and when the section comes back up around again, he did the same thing. I was like, no, no, you changed the mood. <laughs> so, but when I called him on it, it was funny because he goes, I completely respect where you're coming from. He goes, but when that section came, he said, I just felt. Like it needed to drive. It didn't need to be broken up by what you gave me. He goes, and I just wanted to really power through it. And I was like, and at that point, I didn't get it until we went into cut against it. And it was the most natural thing. He was he was so on point about that. Um, he gave me a lot of beautiful stuff, you know, all, all throughout the album. Um, yeah, this this. So the, the title came from, we were laughing one day, him and I. I said, you know, people don't have any imagination anymore when it comes to, to album titles and shit. He was like, yeah, man. And all of a sudden, and we were talking about what albums were like when we were kids. <laughs> because I kept saying, I think I need to go back and write more. Like, you know, like I felt like the song, the, the album needed more music. Even though some of the songs were lengthy, I just kept thinking, like, ah, I got to write, like, two more songs or whatever. And he was like, dude, he goes, Let's just hold on for a second. He goes, just think about this. He goes, when, when you got the, the Times first album, he goes, six songs. He goes, did you miss anything? I said, hell no. He goes, I said, okay, I got one for you. I said, uh. Hot Buttered Soul. <laughs> I said, there were two songs on one side. <laughs> Th 
three songs on here? I said, did you miss anything? He goes, no. I said, Barry White. Got, players, another one. We, we just started going through seven, you know, just the albums that were like pivotal. And we were like, these albums had six songs, seven songs. And you never felt like you were cheated because it wasn't no filler. Just solid music. He said, as a matter of fact, when the album was over, you couldn't wait to put it back on and listen to it again. He said, yeah, that's what this album is. I said, interesting. I said, well, I guess it's kind of like, I guess it's the soundtrack, you know, to who we are at this point. Because he was like, dude, you know, this album is deep. I said, yeah, it's a soundtrack. And we kept laughing about soundtrack. So when I wrote the song that winds up being the soundtrack to the innermost galaxy, it didn't have a title. But I kept saying this, you know, I thought about, um, what was that? Oh, I'm going to get you, sucker. <laughs> and in the end, when they go, um, when Jack of Spades comes on you, and KRS One says, and Bologna um, says to my man Jack Spades, he goes, "Are these your friends?" He goes, "Yeah, every 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 good super, every superhero needs a theme song or something like that. It needs music, and they start playing Jack of Spades." I was like, "Yeah, every every band needs an instrumental track." You know what I'm saying? And the weird thing was. I said the soundtrack. He said, "Yes, it's about us." So it's it's really who we are. It's those kind of like the soundtrack to the inner feelings of us. And he goes, "Well, we're beyond. It's beyond us." He goes, "It's it's, it's the galaxy." And I said, "Dude," I said, "The soundtrack to the innermost galaxy." And we started laughing. I was like, "Thickman and the Sea Monsters." Um, <laughs> we just start saying shit that makes no sense. But we were like, "This is our '70s record." I said, exactly. I said, the soundtrack to the innermost galaxy is a 70s title. And that's how it stuck. And then I reached out to my friend, Cool Core, internationally famous artist. But we grew up together in the South Bronx. And I always loved his artwork. And I reached out to him and I said, dude, would you would you be up for doing the artwork on this on the album? He was like, really? I was like, yeah, I said, I'll send you the record, you know, so you can just kind of get a vibe. But I told him, I gave him, I spoke about what I saw, and he nailed it. I mean, he just took it and ran with it. And um, we decided to do vinyl. It was like, it was so great to be able to see this thing, like, in in real size. Um, the CD, CD's cool, but it was great to see it on vinyl, you know, with a gatefold. Um Wow. I remember. I remember you went through some uh, production distribution challenges. Uh. Oh man! <laughs> Sorry to bring up a sore subject. <laughs> you know it's cool. You know the so here's the crazy thing. So when we decided to do this record, um, we didn't have a clue because we had no deal. Um, and you know it's real interesting. I, you know the business is such a strange twisted and fickle place um, that I love when people who you know who were always hip enough to know better no longer know better but they still got jobs in places where they should know better but you're telling me about this corny act and this corny act and this shitty K-pop band and, and this corny girl group who wants to just hump on everything and, and, and I'm talking to you about music but you don't want to talk to me about music. You want to talk to me about numbers. I'm like, 
Oh, so you're in the business of selling product. Yeah. Yeah. So we we had nowhere to go. And um, I said, you know, um, I reached out to a friend of mine. I, I did a project with a friend of mine who wound up buying fraternity. Now, I remember fraternity because Lonnie Mack was signed to fraternity and put out Wham, that, the, you know, the Memphis man, you know. So fraternity had been a label established in the, in the 50s. Um, but I also know it for a different reason because I, I was a DJ. I was cutting beats in the 70s, in the 80s, rather. And there was a track called Space Funk by Manziel, a cat named Manziel Bush, that came out on fraternity. And I always loved the label, black with the colors and whatnot. But it turns out my friend had bought the entire catalog. He bought the label. And he was putting stuff out through fraternity. And um, something I played on when I was 20, 18, whatever it was, um, my old drummer had found the master tape to it. And we had, we had literally put down a band and an MC crew in the studio, but it never got released. And the guy heard it and he freaked. He was like, this is from 1981. He was like, this is like some, yeah, whatever. He wanted to put it out. So they get with me, I go back in, I clean up the stuff, and they wind up releasing it. And he goes, dude, he goes, if you ever want to do anything, you know, let me know. I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'll keep that in mind. So when we, I started thinking about this record, um, I reached out to him. And I said, would you be up for doing a Spies record? And he was like, sure. He goes, how much do you need? You know, and at that point, I was like, I don't have a clue. I'll figure it out, you know. And um, so he bankrolled the recording. Um, and then I thought about it because somebody said, you know, why don't you guys do a Pledge Music campaign? That way, you know, the people can help, you know, literally remove some of what's been paid. You can get some of that back. I said, okay, and I looked into it, and I would seen a lot of people, a lot of bands have done some really nice things. So I got lucky because the guy who was running it here wasn't the first person I came in contact with. I came in contact with one of the guys who was heading up the London office. And it was the strangest thing because he was a Spies fan. I was like, wow. So I, I just sent on a Hummer, I sent an email, I sent a message. And I was like, hi, I'm Jimmy Hazel, blah, blah, blah. You know, thinking about possibly wanting to do some business with you guys. You know, I play in a band called 24-7 Spies, yada, yada. And dude writes back, he's like, are you kidding me? He goes, I've got harder than you. Gumbo Millennium, this is 24-7 Spies, strength the numbers, temporary discount. Well, okay. What do you want to do? I'm like, so we talk about it, work out this whole thing. He sends me up to the New York guy. Um, but the UK guy is like, I'm not turning this campaign over to anybody. I want to run it. I, we want to take it over. I'm like, cool. What we didn't know and what they didn't know was that um, there had been some serious uh, <laughs> embezzlement going on. <laughs> and the first time... I remember getting an inkling about it was, um, I'm trying to remember what band it was, because it was a big band. Um, it wasn't Killing Joke. It was, it, was, it was a big band who had done a pledge campaign. It might have been Killing Joke. 
whoever it was, I remember they were saying that they were having a hard time getting their fulfillment money to take care of what they needed to take care of. And I was like, and I asked my guy in the, in, in the UK office about it. I said, what's that? He goes, he goes, uh, it just seems to be a little bit miscommunication, this, that, and the other. But in the meantime, I'm starting to follow <laughs> what's being said, you know, by the band, because bands don't lie. <laughs> bands tell the truth, especially when you're fucking up their money. <laughs> like, and it looked like things had been starting to, just mismanagement was getting crazy. And it turned out that the New York office had literally been acting acting as if they were a label, so to speak. And they were taking money from counts and they they were they were like robbing Peter to pay Paul, but they were paying themselves and they were doing all kinds of messed up things with the money and whatnot. And when things really hit the fan over there, we got caught we got caught up in it. But um, luckily for us, the guys over there really went beyond the call because the, the accounts got frozen. The money got stopped. Um, nobody could move forward. They found a way to get back in um, and, and get us a portion of the money. Um, so the only thing that we wound up having to pay for out of pocket, we wound up paying for the fulfillment and we wound up paying for the merchandise. But they wound up covering the manufacturing costs of the vinyl and the CDs. But how how long did that delay the project, though, getting the people? You know, I made a decision, which was really weird because I didn't even I thought about how because the, the the point that we thought we were going to be able to release it wound up not being the case, and um now everybody was starting to get wind that there was real bad things happen in the pledge and I was like how do you keep people who gave their money to this project um, I don't want anybody to feel like they got jerked because that looks like it's coming from us and um, i never forget I, I finished the record and I was sitting on it because I had the art I had everything um, only thing I hadn't had at the, I didn't get at that point was product so I said, you know something, just to keep everybody really cool, I'm going to give everybody the digital. And I gave it to everybody on Christmas. Unannounced, just like, check your, check your email, happy Merry Christmas. And what I didn't think about was, oh, God, all it's going to take is one person who goes, I got the Spies record file sharing. You know, you're giving, you're, you can give the... I said we gotta we gotta put it out, and we put it out with no fanfare. It winds up coming out a month later. Um, we delivered all the physical product to the people who paid, um, but we never got to um, we never got to support it. We never got to promote it, support it. So it became like this best kept secret hidden gem record, um, which is kind of like what Spies I think has always been in a really strange way. We're like musicians know who spies are. Diehard fans who've been with us know what we do. But we're the we're the band that every band has either ripped off, wanted to sound like, <laughs> stolen from, all have gotten bigger, had 
lucrative careers, but we're the dudes that, you know, if we walked in the room, you wouldn't know who we were. Um, but we stay true to the music, and that's always been, like, the biggest reward. So for us, when we finally decided that we were going to go out and support this thing, it, we had set up a tour that literally was going to take us from April to December. Um, we were going to we were going to get our hands dirty <laughs> and literally take it to the people, old school, just like we did in '89. Except we weren't 25 and <laughs> 20, 30 anymore. We were like old dudes. Um, yeah, tell tell me tell me about you and Rick. You know, you're the two that have just stayed through it for so long. Um, what 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 is it about him as a person and as a talent that has made this relationship go on for all these decades? As a person, he is my brother. He is my right hand. He's my he's my dude. And it was funny because when we were when we were coming up, so how we met, which was once again everything that happens with spies or with me or with people, it's like six degrees of separation. Um, with Rick, Rick lived in the projects four blocks down from where I grew up. So I'm here; he's four or five blocks down. Um, he wanted, he want he played in a band with people. I grew up knowing, but didn't know him. Um, he knows half the, the musicians that I know. It, 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 you know, it was just all of this, but we never knew each other. So this one summer, I started wearing a captain's hat. <laughs> God. And everybody kept calling me the captain, like as in to kneel, <laughs> like, because I rocked the captain's hat, and that's the captain's shit. Rick, on the other hand, was rocking a high top fade. So they called him Cameo. So somehow, someway, somebody said, oh, man, you know Cameo. Do you know Cameo? I was like, who that? I said, the band? Yeah, I know the band. They were like, no, 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 the dude, Cameo. I was like, there's no dude named Cameo. Larry Blackman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Larry Blackman don't live in the South Bronx. But... Everybody was asking, like, saying to him, you know the captain, you know, dude plays guitar, you know, so we didn't know each other. And when we saw each other for the first time, we were like, Captain. I was like, Cameo. <laughs> and that. Reputations preceded each other. Our, at, least our, at least our head attire and hairstyle did. So we were like, wow. But we started hanging out. And immediately it became like this musical. Wow, you know our, our musical our musical bond got cemented over Benadryl and David Sanchez and Tone albums. <laughs> Literally, high off Benadryl, tripping off uh, Transformation, The Speed of Love, David Sanchez and Tone. We would sit in the room and just be like, oh, amazing. Oh, because Benadryl was like, you know, you're supposed to take it for your allergies. You know, I'm taking I, it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got this one. <laughs> well, I found out that at that point, it, it made me stoned as hell. Um, 
because he had a cat and I was allergic to cats. And I was like, man, I said, oh, God, you know, my allergies were like legendary. They used to call me Felix Unger because I'd be like, hey, 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 hey. he was like, oh, man, I got, I got some Benadryl. I was like, what's that? He goes, it's for allergies. I was like, oh, okay. I said, give me, give me one. He goes, no, you're supposed to take two. I was like, okay, cool, give me two. Knock you out. <laughs> so, music and, and, and Benadryl, yeah. But we, um, from the time we started to play, I was like, wow. I mean, he was a total badass, but he also, he, the guy that turned him on to bass was a guy who lived in my building who was a mentor to me uh, named A.J. Cresswell. Amazing bass player, stinger, everything. Dude was just so light years ahead of everybody. And um, he was the one that showed Rick the first, his first how to play a scale, how to play an octave. He was the one that really pushed Rick into like, you can do this. And Rick soaked it up like a sponge. And once we started playing together, um, we found our lock. And all of a sudden, there wasn't any other bass player I wanted to play with. And he didn't want to play with any other guitar player. And that was it. So the funny thing is, he wasn't the first bass player in Spies. Um, we had a bass player, amazing dude, but um, he never left his block, <laughs> which is just odd to say. He'd never been outside of his area, which, you know, I never knew anybody who never left where they were, you know, like to go downtown was like a, a, a revelation. So we were all into like the whole punk rock, new wave, hardcore thing. So we would go down to the village. Um, we'd go buy old used clothes and all kinds of crazy stuff. And we took him with us one day. And um, we go down to 8th Street and he's tripping. Like he had never seen people like these before. He'd never seen gay people. He'd never seen punk rocks. He'd never seen new wave people. He never saw strange angular haircuts that were green. People Out of his bubble. Completely. And he literally damn near had a nervous breakdown. He left us. He said, y'all are all possessed by the devil. <laughs> and he left. He, he got on the train and went back home and quit the band. <laughs> and I was like, I know a bass player. <laughs> I know a perfect bass player and it was Rick and Rick came in and that was a wrap and that was that was it and um I love him I, I love him he you know he's just the most honest organic it's it's deep when you when you come across somebody and you don't have to you don't have to speak what you right. want, what you want to hear. It's instinctual. Um, that's him. And for years, you know, I would laugh because I would say, you know, Rick is the George Harrison of spies. <laughs> because he, he, he would always contribute like one or two songs on an album. Um, I would write a bunch of stuff. Our old singer would write a bunch of stuff. And Rick would write one song. Or two songs, but they would always wind up being like my favorite songs on the album. So, on the first album, he wrote Social Plague. Um, he and I wrote Spill My Guts. 
um, the second album, he writes Dude You Knew. And Dude You Knew literally became like my, the mo my favorite song, period. And I would say to him all the time, dude, you need to write more. He's like, ah, yeah, that's your job. <laughs> no, 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 seriously, you need to write more. Yeah, 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 whatever. And um, he, the more he came into the writing aspect, it would be great, you know. By the time we get to strength and numbers, you know, he wrote "Got It Going On." He wrote "I'm Not Going." Um, we wrote "Traveling Day" together. Um, he just he, he wrote "Purple." My goodness. He just, he, when he's on, he's on. And, um, you know, by the time we get to, I think, uh, Heavy Metal Soul by the Pound, he writes Simple-Minded Simon. He just, he just churns out great stuff. So this album, which was interesting, was I had said to everybody, I wanted everybody to write. You know, if possible, everybody write, please, please, please. And nobody did. <laughs> so... Once I got inspired, I start writing, and I'm just writing, 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 and I'm I'm waiting for everybody else to join me, but nobody is. But I'm just kind of like I, I'm so glad that I finally I, I'm able to hear again. I, let me I'll just write I'll just write until the ideas stop, and um, Rick I asked him to come up and play on on some demos and stuff, and he got so inspired by the stuff I was writing. He, he got excited again. I was like, great, you know, good. And he finally decided to write, and he winds up writing Blind Dreaming. And the funny thing is, so Rick's not a guitar player, but Rick had found somebody threw a guitar away. <laughs> he finds it in the trash. He's like, that's a perfectly good guitar. <laughs> Brings it home, he cleans it up. <laughs> got some strings, put some strings on it. And, um, he demoed up the song at home and he played guitar on it, which was like, you know, mind blowing to me because I never heard him play guitar. He tracked like one note, he tracked one string. <laughs> he was, dude was so deep, but he he you know that's how he played chords. He was like, well, I can't chord, but I can I can track the note. Then I track the second note, and then I track the third note. And by the time he sent me the demo, I was like, wow. Okay, I was like, he goes, but you know, you feel, you you do with it what you hear. I said, oh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna expound off what you've given me, and I'm just gonna <clears throat> it is what it is. And by the time that joint was finished, whoo, my goodness, beast of a song. Once again, I said, dude, you kill me with this one song shit. <laughs> I said, I'm waiting for the Rick Skater album. <laughs> But he is the closest thing. He's my brother, you know, period. Yeah, that's evident for sure. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.